Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing. I'm Saxon Baird with Sam Backer as always. And on this episode, we've decided to check in with Hypnosis Song Fund and the current state of music catalogs as an asset class. But before we get into that, exciting news. We will be joining, well, actually, Sam will be joining David Turner of Penny Fractions for a live event. Yeah, first live show, New- baby. Yeah, in New York <laughs> at Nowadays, November 9th. Mark your calendar. Unfortunately, because of my relocation outside of the United States, I will not be able to join. But uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll figure something out. You know, cardboard cutout. I can like zoom in for like a hot second, even though it'll probably be like six in the morning. Maybe I'll zoom in live from Berghain or something. I don't know. We'll we'll figure it out. Uh, do you know who else is going to be joining you all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm incredibly pumped. Um, you know, Saxon, like you said, I'm sorry that you decided to move uh, to Europe in the middle of an unprecedented uh, fuel and energy crisis. So does it even get that cold? I guess it gets cold. It gets cold in Europe. Okay, I take it back. Eastern Europe does get cold. Listen, dude, first of all, we're we're above the 45th parallel in Berlin. And second of all, like, we're going to have a bunch of cuddle puddles and we're going to turn that shit into, like, a modern day, like, German version of an old Wu-Tang Clan, like, music video and just set a lot of fucking trash cans on fire and our fucking triple fat gooses and have a great time. So you just, you just, you Real don't worry talk, about it. Though, we'll dude, good. Okay? I think that that there's money to be made by you by just going and buying a lot of coats in america like winter coats and then bringing them back bruh yeah that's actually a great idea yeah okay cool because i'm probably gonna need the money by then um after i'm paying like 400 euros a, a, a month for the our heating um yeah yeah but uh who besides besides my my heating problems uh fast fast approaching heating problems like do you know who else is going to be a part of the live yeah, event it's a freaking stacked panels so and a stacked a stacked as event. i would hope as i would expect yeah, from the one and only david turner so yeah so um yeah it's going to be uh you know it's going to be um money for nothing featuring david turner of penny fractions of course also um returning guest liz pelly also returning guest sherry who um kind of like a frankly frankly honored to be on stage with these folks um it's gonna yeah it's gonna be a great night y'all should a hundred percent come down especially because i believe there's no entry charge um so definitely make your ways down to nowadays if you live in brooklyn um or the tri-state area no shade on our bridge and tunnel listeners um november 9th 8 p.m to 11 p.m sounds awesome man i want to be there shit too bad i'm going to somebody's wedding uh a couple weeks beforehand and can't stay all the way through november uh anyway (laughs) um that's right sam's getting married congratulations (laughs) okay so uh, now that we've uh, done some some housekeeping, and don't worry, we will go ahead and remind you of that live show again and again and again until it happens. But um, yeah, to dive into what we're talking about, we're kind of talking about the current state of music catalogs as a uh, emerging and attractive asset class. Um, so yeah, about over a year ago, we did an episode on Hypnosis Song Fund. After its founder, Merck Mercuriatus, began making waves in the music industry by utilizing a shit ton of money that he was able to raise 
and offering top dollar to buy out the catalogs of hit song makers. So you've likely read these headlines, you've probably heard our episode. And like as back then, about a year and a half ago, we kind of detailed this approach as uh, sort of like similar to valuing music and hit songs to something like uh, like an expensive painting, um, which is probably usually maybe bought less bought less for maybe the artistry and uh, more as a uh, valuable asset to invest in. Um, yeah, so since that episode, Hypnosis has continued to gobble up catalogs and other similar companies have popped up and are following suit, including like the major labels, right? They're actually doing it themselves as well. Yeah, they have been. Um, I, I just think as we're, as we're talking through this kind of like historical context, um, recent historical context, uh, it's important to note that, that I think Merck and, and a lot of these companies don't don't claim at least that songs are assets like paintings, which kind of, you know, appreciate on the market as a single thing that, that they really try to frame songs and song rights as kind of like live part of a live business venture that they're going to make money by kind of having these songs actually listened to and played. And so it's not just like neat to own some Bob Dylan. It's that Bob Dylan's catalog is actually making you money, for example. But things are not all gravy anymore. Or maybe they are. We're here to kind of figure that out because things have somewhat slowed down a bit for the music catalog acquisition market uh, with recent inflation and rising interest rates. So this has like led to... This has led to Hypnosis and some other companies that are doing similar things to retrench a bit. And uh, in particular, Hypnosis has had to restructure its credit facility as it currently sits about a half a billion dollars in debt. But maybe that doesn't fucking matter because maybe they're kind of like too big to fail. And like, what does this actually mean if that is true? And yeah, we just feel like it was a. It's always it, good to talk, Merck. It's always good to circle back and talk. Yeah, we always Merck. Really, so he's our if, favorite Mercuriatus. Yeah, if actually. he's uh, if he's making. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if he's making headlines and hypnosis is making headlines, we're reading those headlines and the uh, full article as well. Um, but um, yeah, so we figured we, we would go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we just don't read headlines. So we try. So we figured we'd like check in. And kind of try to figure out like what the hell is going on and what this means, if it means anything, if anything has changed in the last year and a half. So I guess with all this happening, questions over the viability and this ongoing trend. Like uh, Sam, where, where, do, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with uh, with, with what it means that uh, hypnosis has quote unquote restructured its credit facility? <laughs> The, the process of uh, planning a wedding has also restructured my credit facility. So I understand. I <laughs> I feel for them. N- yeah. No. So, like, first off, like, let's, like, the last six months or so, um, as if you haven't noticed, there's been economic headwinds. Um, there's real increasing global fear about um, really, a, like, large-scale recession, partially based on... Um, the Russian invasion in Ukraine, partially based on kind of the uh, the long-term continuing implications of COVID-related um, <laughs> disruption, COVID-related everything, basically. There's real worry right now that kind of the, um, that a lot of the central banks are in that, uh, you know that, I don't know if you've ever like skidded on a highway, Saxon, or skidded in a car, and that terrifying thing where it's like you start skidding and then you overcorrect and then you overcorrect and then you overcorrect and you hope that like you manage to like even things out before you slam into a tree on one side or the other. 
that's kind of a little bit like what the global market. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Now, um, in that that ton of money was released into kind of global markets in order to make not a massive recession happen. That plus disruptions created inflation. That could be a really big problem. Now there's everyone's raising interest rates to kind of fight inflation. There, there's a number of, 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 you know, people who understand global economics far better than, than we do. Um, Paul Krugman and um, uh, Adam Tews among them who've kind of like in the last, I think like week and a half, written these pretty dire, like, you know, mainstream as mainstream gets New York Times op-ed headlines being like, they, you know, that these central banks shouldn't all raise interest rates at the same time, that some of these, uh, uh, some of these actions, you know, the, the time horizons they take place on are like six months to a year out, and that it's totally possible that if everyone does the same thing, all of which individually would make sense, um, on a mass scale, <laughs> it could be disastrous. And not to mention, like, we were joking about it before, but energy prices in the UK are eight times what they are in the u.s right now that's un and and it's not probably going to be the worst this winter it's probably going to be the worst next winter it's crazy and so just like there's a lot of um i believe the technical term is like adverse tendencies out there in the economy everyone's buckling down the ship um and they have been for a little while right um we've seen all a host of like tech and tech related firms drop precipitously um, as people start, you know, with higher interest rates where you can actually make money by putting your money in a bank, all of a sudden people look at tech companies and they're like, are you actually doing anything? Why should I risk my money and lend it to you if it's not clear? You know, it's unclear how you're going to make money, like <laughs> delivering pet food next day. Or, you know, in our case, um, how spending that much money, kind of undisclosed, but I think like north of a hundred million on Neil Young's <laughs> recording catalog, which is now off Spotify and remains off Spotify, how that's going to make you money in the long run. And so partially because a lot of the, I think a lot of the low hanging fruit got bought maybe, but also because these conditions, there's been a real dramatic and marked slowdown in the numbers of new acquisitions by these companies. Um, and, as kind of a, um, as we've been saying for a long time, as we've looked at this space, there's a question about whether, without that kind of constant drumbeat of news, that drumbeat of like ever higher valuations, if valuations have leveled off or in some cases even declined, where artists are now getting less money than they would have gotten for a catalog, let's say a year, a year and a half ago, in the kind of like peak of the like uh like stonks era of investment <laughs> um there's a question about like whether the kind of hype frothy tendencies that we've said drove a lot of this industry or seem to drive a lot of this industry the sense that every day was bringing a newer higher valuation and that increased the valuations of all the previously purchased materials like what what happens when the kind of that that treadmills pace starts to slow down and everyone kind of like wakes up and maybe tries to decide whether they're hungover or not yeah it's kind of interesting and that's where we are well and, and that's where we are but that some of the stuff that you you just said is is was our 
thinking out loud concerns in our last episode, which, you know, like, I think, I, I don't know at that point how much, you know, hypnosis had spent, but it was like, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on <laughs> gobbling up these music catalogs, as you, you gave an example, the Neil Young one. Um, and I think, you know, our question was like, our question was like, you know, how are they actually going to uh, turn a profit with this? And, you know, I think my conclusion was like, mm, I don't think it has anything to do with turning a profit in the sense that, um, in that it's more about like increasing the value of like hypnosis's stock and like just their general value as a company and actually doesn't ha there doesn't even need to be like any like attempt at just like turning a profit, which is like really kind of like the model that I think, you know, it's a very like simplistic way of talking about it and, and, and we can get into more details of it, but it's, it's basically the model that it's basically the model that like Silicon Valley startups, tech silicon. It's basically the model that Silicon Valley's tech startups or tech startups in general kind of like use. You know, they get like angel investment. Like, yes, the idea is at some point they possibly like you know turn a profit, but like sometimes it like whatever. It doesn't really matter for a while. <laughs> it seems like, um, and right. So that was our. So that was like kind of our concern back then. But uh, or that's what I was. That's what I was thinking was back then. But now it's like you know, here we are again, having that same question. And I kind of feel like I, I'm still probably right. Like I kind of feel as if like hypnosis is just like too big to fail at this point. And then they'll continue to get propped up in some way until they can figure it out. Oh, and like, you know, I, I just, just, just something that I mentioned in the last episode that I want to go ahead and continue to mention again, a year and a half later is that um, hypnosis doesn't have any employees. <laughs> <laughs> which is my favorite detail about hypnosis uh and so like i don't know who's working on like um getting them uh you know getting these sync deals and these license deals to start turning a profit but um it doesn't seem like they have any full-time employees as far as uh the last time i checked it well, it's a it's a, <laughs> it's a complexly structured business i know I mean, and are, we should get into there that are people right but like who who exactly where exactly they work? I mean, so okay, so <laughs> yeah, right. But still, you know, like yeah, let's get into the nitty gritty details uh, to explain like what how that even works. But uh, but yeah, nonetheless, I think my point still stands. <laughs> it's not like they got a crack team of like a hundred people like working on this. <laughs> how well, do we make or, it? How do we make a profit? <laughs> or if they do, Saxon. I mean, and I I think that like to push back to push back a little bit. I mean, I do think that. You know, they, they, regardless of where exactly in this weird structure these people are, like, I think they do have song managers. I think it's more that what you're pointing to is is the level of, that it's important not to understate the level of financialization that hypnosis brings to the table. That it's really not and isn't functioning like a boutique publisher right the way that like let's say uh, sometimes it presents itself it's like oh we're just like one small publisher and you know we're focusing on just the best songs and that's why we're able to get better returns than like the publishing company that's connected to like warner like warner chappelle publishing or whatever but actually it's really like imbricated in the you know the, the mechanisms of global finance it's really a mechanism implicated in like private equity and as a result it it functions it functions kind of differently and maybe has a different set of constraints and a different set of of possibilities and, and 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 maybe some of those possibilities that are opened up by by its kind of new position you know 
maybe actually do have um, opened up some possibilities for its ability to change its ability to change the context. So 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 a couple of um, examples here, right? One is that the Grammys added a new category for songwriter. Yeah. Okay. And what is it? It's it's like songwriter of the year. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. And now you know. Okay. That's dumb, and we don't care. Except except that, and this is something that I think that um, David Arditi's work really focuses on is that it's important to read the Grammys not as you know partially its promotion. But it's also like a symbolic sphere in which the powers of the music industry talk to each other. And pat themselves on the back. And pat themselves on the back. I mean, look, if the powers of an industry are talking to each other, do you really think they're not going to be patting each other on the back? No. No, everyone likes a back pat. But. Absolutely. Of course. Yeah, of course. And also, I'd say it's also maybe like a culturally symbolic in this in the sense that it actually, or I would also say that like getting a reward for like songwriter of the year is in some sense uh holds like cultural weight and if you just happen to want to sell your catalog or maybe you own that catalog and you want to turn around and uh try to like offer some licensing deals you could be like well you know they're they're a grammy award-winning artist songwriter so maybe that makes it a little bit more attractive maybe ups the price of it you know just thinking out loud here but so there's that but also i think what you're seeing there and i would again this is total Got nothing to back this up, but I cannot believe that something as industry-centric as the Grammys is going to add a new category that specifically is designed to shine light on these figures who are being kind of trumpeted by this new asset class that's backed by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, it's not coincidence, right? Like, I read this as a direct effect or maybe an indirect effect, but certainly a following from the massive investments in songwriters and songwriting rights over the previous several years that I would read this as if we think about the Grammys as kind of like weird and mediated, but at some level, the powers of the record industry symbolically representing themselves to themselves, right? An act of symbolic re- representation um, that this is, a representation of the increasing importance of the idea of songwriting within the modern music industry. Um, and that both comes from, you know, I think like the, the, the kinds of money that's being thrown into these rights and into the idea of the songwriter. And secondly, in, in, in kind of a move that both reflects maybe the changing conditions that allow companies like hypnosis or could allow companies like hypnosis to make more money, but also reflect their ability to kind of make those conditions possible. It's kind of like a a weird snake eating its own tail type situation. In the kind of digital economy for music, in this moment where like TikTok hits come out of nowhere, you know, forget about the death of the album, almost like death of the artist, which is something maybe we can talk about more later, like where songs will be hits without people knowing who the artist is. That actually like songwriters maybe actually do have her, new new preeminence within the music industry after decades and decades and decades of them being kind of second fiddle to the artists who are performing many artists who were kind of singer songwriter types themselves so the artists were the songwriter the 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 performers were the songwriters and that's on one side and then the flip side is that also 
some of that is supported by changes in kind of payout structures, changes in payout structures that, again, I think are likely linked to the fact that for the, you know, first time, there's these huge pools of money that are trying to push for songwriters to get paid more. So, for instance, the, the, the copyright royalty board in the U.S. increased songwriters' percentage of, of kind of like total... Um, mechanical royalties by like six percent which is like unheralded and all these streaming services owe songwriters like and it's retroactively changed so that they owe all these songwriters like millions and millions and millions of dollars and so like i have to say hand it to the man right this these are kind of changes that merc two years ago was like i think we can get this done and it turns out that having a multi-hundred million dollar investment firm who's like solely working on trying to to make this argument and likely doing all kinds of behind the scenes things and more generally like the emergence of an industry focused on this and like presto changeo a couple years later for the first time in many years songwriters start getting a different percentage of the split that 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 does reflect kind of the the, the ways in which this industry is maybe changing changing the broader music industry i mean and i think if we just go ahead and like look at what merck is saying you know in his interviews i mean the, you know there was a recent i think he was on a recent podcast um morning coffee your morning po coffee podcast and like on that he said you know a number of things about songwriters and was kind of positioning himself as like this like advocate for songwriters and you know he had the, i believe like on on the podcast he had this he had this thing where he was talking about his motives behind like hypnosis and he said that he had like an alter you know the motive like he had one motive which is obviously to establish this like business and like have it you know like uh demonstrate the true value of songs but he says ulterior motive was to use the platform to advocate and fight for songwriters and and then he also had this quote about how like investors now sit at, in the shoes of the songwriters, um, which is kind of an interesting way of putting it. Um, and that he's that, wait, he said that investors sit in the shoes of the songwriters. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's wild. That's one of those things when like money says what it means accidentally too clearly. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because like it's important. Sure. He's fighting for songwriters, but also hypnosis buys those songwriters rights. Right. So, like, once you sell it to hypnosis, you're not making that money anymore. Maybe you're, you're, you're like, uh, maybe he's fighting for, like, the, the value of the alienated labor of songwriters. But, like, his entire business model is predicated on, you know, for a, for a good sum, but, like, decisively splitting songwriters from their intellectual and cultural productions yes and which we will talk about uh a recent we'll talk about how future recently sold off a lot of his uh like rights and uh how there was like some backlash and we can go ahead and discuss that later in the show um about like also what that means for like the music industry and and the role of the songwriters as we're talking about right now but yeah if you get this full quote you know i think you're, you're right on sam so i'll just go ahead and complete the entire quote he says you know um the investors now sit in the shoes of the songwriter they have complete alignment with the songwriter uh, the investors, of course, back me 1000% when it comes to advocating and fighting for the songwriter because they want to get paid more money. And they know that if the songwriter gets paid more money, they'll get paid more money, which is like such an like, it's, such, it's like <laughs> this. First of all, it's exactly what you said. It's like when like money kind of says what it means a little too much. But it's also just this weird little sort of like like use of language where like advocating and fighting 
and like about the songwriter making more money but exactly like you said it's like well wait a minute is, is it the songwriter making more money or is it that like the value of the cattle the songwriting catalogs and the, the value of the catalogs in which you're gobbling up is actually going to go up in value and possibly make more money for the people investing into it right it's like it's like this weird like like, I mean, am I, am I, like, missing something? Is the songwriter making more money? Like, how is he advocating and fighting for them? I think it's a little complicated, right? Yeah, like, it's very complicated. If if by throwing around this much money, right? Like, money's got gravitational pull. If by throwing a much this much money and attention into songwriting and increases the valuations of songwriting more generally, sure, the songs and songwrites that his company has purchased don't, you know, that's that's the investor standing in the shoes of the songwriters, you know, strumming their guitars. But if you aren't haven't sold yet and they're able to make changes that affect the fundamental payout structures of like the different kinds of, of rights and streaming. Right. Yeah. The, the average Joe, you know, average Joe six pack songwriter is going to get more money, just not the songwriters that Merck is at, any songwriters that Merck is actually interacting with. Kind of brain bending. If the songwriters are getting paid more, then the value of like the songs that they're writing, their music catalog, like increases, which could also mean that like now, like, you know, Hypnosis, if they wanted to buy that music catalog, would have to pay more. But also it means, and maybe this is like a little simplistic like conclusion, but it also means that the value of the catalogs they own will probably also rise. And so if it's like kind of like rising tide, uh, what's that saying about like a you know a, a high tide rises, yeah, a rising tide yeah. rises all boats kind of kind of move. I mean that's kind of the way I'm also interpreting it. And as you and as you've said, uh, and as you were you were basically about to illustrate, like it, it actually has happened. Maybe let's just go ahead and like put a pin in that for for a minute um, before we go down that path too much. Like, let's go ahead and just like rewind a little bit for a second and like discuss like the slowing down of music catalogs being um, bought up as like a, you know an attractive budding new like asset class. And let's like maybe kind of talk a little bit about you know the thing I mentioned at the top of the show about about hypnosis having to kind of restructure its credit facility and like whether or not like you know it really actually does need to turn a profit because i think i think that's kind of like a really key point to understanding all of that and like once we kind of like understand that aspect then we can kind of like look into do the classic money for nothing thing like look into our crystal ball and kind of start to like think about like what that means you know for songwriters the music industry etc cetera, etc cetera. so to be clear, like, you know, uh, hypnosis is like over half a billion dollars in debt. It restructured its credit facility. But it seems as though like the the question around turning a profit, like, let's just go ahead and answer that. Like, it, it doesn't seem like that really matters. Like, am I right about that? Like, you know, like and and what is the role behind like Blackstone? Because like hypnosis is, is heavily funded by them as well. If I'm if I if I if I understand this correctly. So for one about like turning a profit is that it's really <laughs> complicated um there's a lot of different ways to try to analyze whether a company is returning money right and there's currently in the financial press and this is very really limit you know 
reaches and then and then breaks the limits of my financial knowledge and understanding there's like an ongoing debate about whether the like the heuristics basically that hypnosis is applying and that that specific kind of external evaluators are applying the hypnosis to determine levels of profitability like are they appropriate do they take into account potential for future interest rates and so it's really it's murky i think it's it's, it's mercurious it's mercurious <laughs> Merc- mercurious okay anyways yeah okay it's yes. mercury yeah. It, it's mercurial uh yeah so so i think it's not it's not super clear but what is clear is that even as hypnosis's stock price has dropped its corporate architecture is such that it's going to be able to continue existing in one form or another as an ongoing business concern. And a lot of that, again, is because of its relationship to the broader financial markets, and in particular, its relationship to um, Blackstone, which is the like one of the world's largest asset managers, which is an absolutely like gobsmackingly huge company. Um, in terms of in terms of the amount of capital that it has, and so you know, without getting too far into the weeds, hypnosis is both different funds. So there's kind of like most of the time when people are talking about hypnosis, they're talking about this one fund that's raised a lot of money and purchased a lot of songs. But hypnosis is also the advisory group that manages that fund, and then potentially other funds. And and that's kind of what's happened with Blackstone, which is that. Blackstone both gave a huge amount of money to over $1 billion to create a new partnership, a new fund to acquire, quote unquote, to acquire music rights and manage catalogs. So like a, like a cousin to the hypnosis that we know. I going to say know and love, know and loathe, it just, just know, to the hypnosis that we know. But also they had another deal in which they, for an undisclosed amount of money, bought an undisclosed amount of the the kind of I think the technical term is like investment advisor company basically the way I think about it and understand it is kind of like the brain that controls like the limbs of hypnosis um officially it is undisclosed percentage music business world reported that they bought 51% which means that blackstone owns a controlling stake in that company, though Merck remains its CEO. And the upshot of all of this, I guess, is that once you have that kind of relationship with a company like Blackstone, it means that you're not going to run, you're not going to just like crash and run out of money. That individual funds can come and go, but like as long as Blackstone thinks that this whole thing is a good idea, like you have access to an ungodly amount of capital. And and I, I imagine that's also going to be true with some of the other funds in this space, whether that is because they already have relationships to large pools of capital or, and, and um, I'm quoting some, some reporting in the financial press or some, some, uh, some thinking in the financial press is that it's possible that if some of these other funds, smaller ones do really stumble and begin to fall, company like Blackstone certainly has the assets to potentially like purchase them so you could get um, some more consolidation in this space that's seen this like intense proliferation of 
like mushroom like proliferation of all of these different song funds it, that almost sounds like um it's modeling itself after like the major labels <laughs> like wouldn't the ideal be situation be that you have like three song funds and they kind of control like you know 90 percent of the most popular like uh music from the last hundred years <laughs> yeah yeah that would and then, then they wouldn't drive up uh they wouldn't compete against each other and drive up valuation deals. I mean, it's a little bit more tricky because the major labels are already publishing companies um, or have closely linked Right, I know, companies. which really complicates it, right. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could imagine an increasingly tense interaction between these various funds and the major labels. Though, again, if we're thinking about, you know, being corporate architecture – the major labels are also all part of massive media conglomerates themselves, right? Like Universal Music is part of Universal, which is a much bigger company um, and often all have various kinds of co-investments. And so you do get this thing where on one level, companies can seem like they're fighting and on another level, they're all co-owning each other. But I guess it's possible to like... <laughs> stare into the void of financialization and hope that the void doesn't stare back at you. But I actually, I'm not sure if the specific mechanics of all of this matter all that much, except in terms of kind of general tendencies, you know, kind of general laws of motion. And it seems like, from what I can understand of this, of this moment, is that despite this slowdown, Enough money, exactly what you've been saying, Saxon, enough money has been thrown into this space that it's able to kind of create enough relationships that it, the rug and it's bought enough actually valuable stuff. The rug is not just going to get like pulled and it collapses like Enron, you know, or like it just like, go, you know, it, it just slowly goes away. It's going to be able to keep making deals and, and keep changing the music industry, which kind of leads us to like these questions of like okay and and, and that's kind of the, the, the discussion about the grammys we just had i think is why it's really pertinent to keep in mind which is that we're already starting to see the implications of this new sector as kind of a substantive grounded part of this intensely complicated music ecosystem and so the question is like okay so if that started to happen like what what happens next like what how does these the existence and you know let's let's for the sake of argument say the continued existence of these large scale financially backed alternative publishing companies what does that do to the music industry what does that do to music how does it change things and i think and what i think that you've identified in this conversation you've mentioned it a couple times and i think maybe we can talk about it a little bit more that that's a good thing a good example to think with is the sale of futures catalog yeah, so Future selling off his music catalog. Okay, so to be clear, it emerged in September, late September, that Future, the rapper from Atlanta, had sold a huge chunk of his publishing catalog um, from music dating back to 2004 through 2020, um, comprised of over 600 songs, including hits like Jumpman with Drake and Mask Off, personal favorite. Um so Future got a little bit of flack on 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 the internet for it. Uh, he was being called 
uh, p- people were calling him that he he had like he had sold out. Some people, which was bizarre. Some people had uh, were were noting that um, that selling his catalog right now was um, like a really dumb thing to do because like the people that he sold it to are going to make like so much money off of him. And I think what the what the what the criticism was suggesting was that Future is still like a really viable listen to artist and considering that he sold music leading up all the way up to 2020, you know, mask off is like, I'm sure still, you know, gets regular play, like, et cetera. Like, you know, they're kind of like, why would you just like take the money on the table now and not continue to earn like the royalties, um, like into the future? Um, uh, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but which is something, which is something that we brought up, uh, like in our, in our episode, like a year and a half ago, which like considering like, you know, the mind of the artist. And, and I think the one thing you have to consider, or the one thing that we consider then, which, you know, we'll go ahead and mention again right now is that like, you know, yes, mask off might get a lot of plays now or like jump man with Drake, but like it's diminishing returns as time goes on. Like it's going to get played less and less and less. Now, obviously that's more complicated, you know, maybe a, you know, a movie or a TV show picks it up, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and it like gains popularity again. But you know, if you're an artist and you're looking at the situation, like you're going to take the money on the table and that kind of seems to make sense. But what's fascinating about futures choice to do this is like, you know, as I just mentioned, like he's still like a active, he's still like an active artist. That's still making music and, is very popular and so it, i don't know so we, I, we found we thought that that recent example was like pretty pretty interesting because i think it's like probably the best example of like a like active musician selling off like their their music catalog like an active like still very popular amongst like a yeah, younger crowd just... like it's like it's not like neil young yeah neil young's alive it's so popular but like it's it's like it's quite different actually yeah and i think it's also interesting because of who future is and like his role in the, the the history of rap music right like that future isn't I mean, futures the depends how you slice generations like the grandfather or great grandfather of like pr- pretty much every major rapper <laughs> like in terms of like stylistically like on like i think like you know unbelievably influential artist and so like it it, it is interesting because in some ways i think it reflects like a series of bets on a whole host of of dynamics within the music industry right it reflects a set of bets about how long artists careers last it reflects a set of bets on how hits will continue you know how plays will continue to go like how long that genealogy continues to funnel people back um it also kind of suggests like what what kinds of career structures are going to be now admittedly also um i know nothing about futures personal finances and in poking around online and some of that like like online backlash some people were like this means he's in financial trouble which like I don't know I don't see why you would assume that but like before we get on and like make up a million and one reasons it is important to note that like there are many reasons why an individual especially an individual with what I imagine to be complicated finances might need a lump sum payment at a certain point in their career I just don't know I've n- never had that kind of problem 
Right. So yeah, yeah. So like putting so like putting that aside, like you know we you know there are still motivations for doing this, but like as you were kind of saying, it it, it does bring up another a number of interesting things to like think upon, considering yeah, like you said, his role not only like in hip hop, but the fact that you know his last album debuted at number one and moved you know almost a quarter of a million album equivalent units in its first week. So like dude's so popular and still making money off of off of the music that he drops and to add one more thing it's it's really interesting who future sold it to which he sold it to influence media partners which has two investors blackrock and warner music group and just to just to sort of i don't know it's kind of funny because uh future's on so future is on epic which is owned by Sony, <laughs> so you know, like I don't know, they're, they're they're all they're all they're all in this. They're all just like so, passing the like, money let's, around. Let's I guess think a little bit about like why you know what this could tell you about like the changing shape of careers. Because like one one version of this is like the let's call it the market face value, market face value approach, right? Which is that actually these smaller artist-focused companies are able to provide better returns on the catalog than the kind of the big traditional publishing companies. And like you can imagine, you can imagine that happening a, a bunch of different ways. And like one of the most popular ways is by they, they've started and kind of, I think, um, been a leading part of a broader inter- industry shift um, to really, really push interpolations in popular music right that instead of you know old school publishing companies um and but i don't mean by, by old school publishing companies i don't mean like the older publishing companies that exist now i mean like publishing companies in 2000 or whatever right like decades ago or a decade ago would kind of like chill and if someone wanted to to pull part of their song into a new song they had to like ask permission. It was tricky, you know. Famously, a variety of rappers, um, shouts to De La Soul, whose stuff is still not on streaming, ran afoul of of, of these complexities. But I, I think that there's been a move in more recent years to like not just accept pulling old material into new songs, but to like actually push, actually push for older hits to be turned into newer hits. And there's been a whole string of songs that are like they're not covers exactly like portugal demands like uh rebel just for kicks which is a weird version cover but with different lyrics and terrible production of like please mr postman is like maybe the perfect example of that right that there's so like there's industry mechanics to try to get older songs with familiarity that people kind of know and put them in new packages because that's in some ways maybe a more um, likely avenue to a new hit, given how crowded the media marketplace is, than just a new song. Um, and especially a new song that, if it's too close to an old song, which is like the way that people used to have hits, right? You just like almost rip off a song, but change things a little bit. But given the kind of cloud of, of litigation that like emerged um, after a number of things, maybe most notably like the Blurred Lines uh, decision where uh, Robin Thicke ended up owing Marvin Gaye estate money, even though the songs really weren't the same. It's like it's better to just pay people in, and once you're just 
cutting people in as songwriters, you might as well use the melody and lyrics that people already know. And so given all that, right, given all that, there's a version where it's like, you know, Future's early hits are like a decade old now. Maybe uh, they're about to be a decade and a half old. And it's possible that like, if you want new hits to come out of those old hits, actually being on, uh, you know, uh, that there's actually ways that this kind of publishing firm could get future placements and get future collaborations that he'd be unable to get on his own or with his older music. There's another thing, right? Which is that the way this company and some of these companies work, this is kind of that creeping financialization argument, is Future sold, how many did you say, Saxon? Like 600 or something? 660-something of his songs? Yeah, six, yeah, just over just over 600 songs. So that, like, in some ways establishes, like, a benchmark valuation for much of his publishing catalog. That also means that, like, it establishes a valuation for the other part of his publishing catalog that he didn't sell. And that if this publishing catalog that he did sell increases in value, the stuff he held on to also increases in value. And that future as an artist increases in value. And so that, like, it's kind of betting on the market a little bit, but there's a, a sense where, like, <laughs> you know, it's like... um you know, if you own like undeveloped land, selling half of it to a ski resort or something, which makes the other half of your land, which was previously not worth as much, worth more. And there is, you know, that exposing yourself to the risk of the market like that for someone like Future, he might be like, I'm going to keep having hits. And my new hits, the the song, the, the value of that publishing is going to be higher because look how much money people paid for my old hits, not even the new hits. Yeah, those those are all great points, Sam. And another question that kind of I've been thinking about, like, what what is what does that like mean as far as like, in regards to the role of the artist, like in the mm-hmm. musical ecosphere, I guess. And like, not to be all over the place, but like, if you also think about, you know, we're always considering like the role of like social media and TikTok and like gaming and how like and these all these other sort of musical touch points, um, which are like all revenue streams uh, for the labels and you know for the artists. Like, considering all that, it like. It does, it does like bring up a, like a whole other sort of like, it does bring up a lot of other stuff to kind of like think upon in regards to like, yeah, like what is the role of like a music artist in like 2022? Yeah, that's really interesting. Like what is the role of the artist? And there is a version where like, you know, I kind of gestured to this before about like whether we're seeing, you know, the death of the album has like long been like bemoaned and like discussed with the rise of streaming, that it's all about singles. But, like, I, I, there's a kind of newer discourse, right, that's the idea of, like, the death of the artist, that especially in places like TikTok, especially given, you know, I don't know, for example, like, EDM remix culture, um, or or the kind of, um, you know, interpolations on top of interpolations that uh, is increasingly prevalent in, in pop music now, that you do get like this death of the artist, right? That like songs exist kind of not without context, but in digital contexts that shift and change kind of independently of the artists who produce them. And so like just kind of picking up what, what you said, Saxon, and thinking about it a little bit more, running with it a little bit, is like, what's the role of the artist? And, and there's a weird, and maybe this is a stretched analogy, but what you could be saying here is, you know, there's this move in um, 
in the 70s and 80s in, in businesses, right? Like in the 50s and 60s, you got these enormous businesses that did all kinds of everything, right? They were like uh, horizontal and vertical and they would keep it all in-house. In the 70s and 80s and 90s, what you started doing was kind of being like, no, we're going to focus on one thing. Businesses are going to focus on one or two things and we're going to spin off all the pieces so that they could be their own companies focusing on their own things. And like part of it is like, is that what, given how complicated, what you were just saying, right? That there's video game rights and streaming rights and and, and uh, placement and, I don't know, like future metaspheres and like this whole world. Could it be possible that future is like, it's better for me to just literally take that whole part of like me as a business artist production company, basically, and just spin it off sell it off to a different company that can focus on that and i'm gonna focus on like touring and making money from that and producing new hit songs and i'm just like not gonna i'm gonna take lump sum payments because keeping that in-house is actually to my detriment um maybe even potentially given uh i don't know future's relationship to the record labels that 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 to sony but like it, it just it's better for me to like separate that off and it, it kind of does create i mean and this is one of the things about financialization, right? It it reduces friction, it reduces context, and it it makes decisions like that possible. That maybe it is better to just be like, eh, all of that is like, it's no longer me. I took the money. I, I I it's now in an investment bank somewhere. It's making me money, and I don't need to worry about it. And I can focus on what I do best. Yeah, it it also does some interesting things because you said touring, but it also like it kind of like allows like someone to sort of like also just like. Like exit from fame Whoa. in a sense yeah. as well. Like like literally like you know because it's like this thing where like uh, when we're talking about hip hop like aging hip aging rappers is like not a thing usually. Although I will say like Future's in his forties I think at this point, and then so is Two Chainz. So and Kanye. So it's it's changing, but nonetheless, it like it kind of allows them to just be like like if Future just wanted to like write songs and maybe even like write songs for like other people. Like, he could just, like, instead of the grind of, like, focusing on touring, he can, you know, if, 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 what I'm trying to say is, like, if the value of songwriting and being a songwriter and getting that songwriting credit is, like, increasing and, like, you have the opportunity to, like, sell off these sort of rights, then it's, like, you can kind of just, like, actually in a, in a way, at least at, at least on futures level, I think, I don't know if, how much this would apply on, like, a s- smaller levels, but, like, you it's, like, it's kind of, like, a smooth exit, like, out of, like, the grind of touring and fame. You know, and and or like you could be like a little bit more selective about instead of just like constantly grinding on tour, like you can do it every couple of years or something like that. I don't know. It's just like it's interesting in a weird way. It sort of opens up, I guess, like a new approach. It opens up like a new approach to to a career, being an artist and being a career. Yeah, a career. Yeah, yeah a fucking career. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, that's really really interesting because it, and this is like maybe it's like the, the benefits of financialization or something, but I hadn't quite thought about that in terms of like the potential input of a career, right? Because in some ways, yeah, you're right. Once you sell those rights, you're out. And it, in some ways it frees you from having to, you know, whether or not it would be more beneficial for you in the long run. Like there is like the, the, the core part of human nature, which is like, if you can keep doing stuff over a period of years to make yourself more money, a lot of people end up doing it, right? And in some ways, like, 
if future is now separated, like the, the, the future trajectory of future's career is now separated from how much money he makes from these older set of songs, because like that amount of money is capped at this sale value. Yeah. It, it, it is to a certain extent. It, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of liberatory. It, it's also, there's another way to look at this, I think, which is like the kind of adversarial approach, you know, and maybe this is the wrong one, but like, at some level, you could read this transaction as like future betting that this is the best time to sell and the other person betting that this is the best time to sell, the, the other party of the transaction. And maybe they're both right, but like in a weird way, it's future saying my song rights are not going to be more valuable in five years they're going to be less. I, I mean, I agree. And I think that's a great point. And maybe just to wrap up and I'm curious what, you know, maybe trying to think of like a, like a last point to sort of like uh, wrap up this episode too. You know, it, it does do this thing where it kind of also seems like it could be like a long-term investment that continues to solidify the, if I'm just thinking purely business and not thinking about, you know, the global warming or something, but like, you know, if you're thinking just purely business, it does seem to like do this thing where it seems to solidify in a long-term or it's like a long-term investment for these like major labels. Oh, interesting. You're considering like, okay, so, so future sold this off to like Warner music group. And it's like, yes, like there's just going to be diminishing returns on like futures catalog, but like, they own it. Yeah. 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 You know what I mean? Like, and and then, so they continue to just like gobble, yeah, they, they could, yeah, exactly. They're here to say it just continue to gobble up all of these like famous artists. And I think if you take that stat, and I don't have it in front of me, but something about like, you know, it's like twenty artists that make up like ninety percent of like all mm-hmm. streams on Spotify. Like, you know, and like I know that and forgive me listeners 20, for but being like, incorrect not like, many. about that. But like it's it's yeah, it, it's yeah, not many, right? Not that's the point. Is that like I mean, if you're a major label, you can just look at that that fucking those fucking who those 20 people are and just try to buy up their fucking catalogs in the next like 10 to 20 years <laughs> and, you know and then you own them you know and it and it kind of it almost becomes a sort of like long-term investment despite the diminishing returns it's like well, you own that catalog no there's two ways to read it right like on one level and and i think both of them are kind of fun to play out um and, you know we're really we're, the crystal ball is particularly misty but like on one side there's a take where it's like that's really interesting, I feel like, which is that, you know, rap music has been in a relative period of stylistic stasis for the past almost decade now, like in, in a way that it would have been unthinkable in previous 10 years. We've talked about this a little bit more, a little bit in previous episodes, I think, which is like, you know, I would argue, and I mean, like, please do at me, um, that rap music in 2012 and 2022 is, with with some notable major exceptions, right, in 2012 and 2022 is more similar than rap music was from 2002 to 2012, for sure. And I would say from 1992 to 2002 also, that, like, there's been a kind of like a little bit of like a slowing of a stylistic churn. And there's been a question of like, is this the new normal? Partially because, you know, I don't know, rap's adjacency to the mainstream of pop means that it can't change as fluidly or all kinds of reasons you can imagine for that happening. But from Future's perspective, he might be kind of betting and saying like, 
I think it's going to change again dramatically in a way that's going to decrease the value of my catalog the same way that, I don't know, the rise of trap decreased the value of Mace's catalog. <laughs> um, I don't know. I've been seeing some Mace shirts being sold well, at I mean, Urban like, Outfitters lately. One, a great song lives forever. But no, but but on the other hand, what you're saying that's really interesting and, and there's another way to read the same moment and um, it's, it's all overdetermined like infinitely and it's a moment where I think we're just kind of like beginning to see the outlines of what might happen and can go a lot of different directions. So you're right. It's a tremendous investment in like like a set of black artists and black aesthetics, right? It's a real, like, we're going to spend millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, like not just on like future as an artist selling records right now, but future as like a long-term investment. And that is not the kind of thing that the music industry traditionally did with black artists, they just didn't. They steadfastly uh, refused to do so until usually like well, well, well past their peak. And so it is, right? It's saying like we're going to be here in Atlanta making money from these records for a long time. And that's an interesting read too. Yeah, yeah. Lots to think about. Um, lots to think about. But I think we will go ahead and put a pin in this episode right there and continue to obviously watch this space. Um as usual, please follow us on the socials and friend podcasts on Twitter, moneyfornothing.substack. You can get our very infrequent newsletter. Don't worry, we don't spam the hell out of you. We send a nice little newsletter once a month. And you should read it. It's really great. Um, <laughs> uh, music by Bird Language. And don't forget, live event with Sam, David Turner, Penny Fractions, a bunch of other heavy hitters in this space. November 9th, New York, Nowadays. And we'll be back again in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening. Bye.